Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We're back in Luke chapter 22. If you would please stand for the reading of our passage this morning. Luke 22, verses 35 to 38. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. And he said to them, When I sent you out with money belts and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we return now to the, to the day before Jesus' crucifixion. He's giving his final words to his apostles, preparing them as we learn in this passage for what is coming next. And so going back over chapter 22, you'll remember these conversations. Jesus asked Peter and John to prepare for them to eat the Passover meal. Go prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat of it. Jesus also institutes the Lord's Supper, the new covenant meal. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is, my cu- this is the cup which is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. And then Judas is warned. Right? The Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then the apostles, right on the heels of that, argue about who is the greatest. And then Jesus tells them who is the greatest. Right? The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And then, and then right on the heels of that, Jesus comes back and encourages the apostles. He says, you, you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What, what a... Um, What a dangerous encouragement for those who have just been arguing about who's greatest. And then Jesus addresses Peter and his impending denial of association with him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Then we come to our passage this morning. It's the last part of what is said to the apostles before they depart go out of that upper room and head, uh, head on to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus would agonize, the place where Jesus would, would pray, and the place where Jesus would be arrested. And so there, there are, um, these are Jesus' parting words. Last formal words he gives to his apostles. And so what does he say? Well, he says two things. He says, get ready. And he says, my death is going to mean something. 
Those are the two last things he leaves for them. Get ready. My death will mean something. So first, Jesus says, when I sent you out with money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they say, no, nothing. You remember that Jesus, what Jesus is talking about here. I preached on it like three years ago. This is Luke 9, right, where we read about Jesus sending the apostles out the first time. And they are told, essentially, don't prepare. Don't do anything, just go. Right, Luke 9, 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out of that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so departing, they began going throughout all the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they just immediately went out. And God was going to take care of them as they went. Everywhere they went, not only were there miracles happening, but God was making sure even their provisions are miraculously given to them as they went along. I mean, it's just like the generation in the wilderness who didn't have to prepare a meal, right? They simply had to collect the manna that God provided for them all along the way, everywhere they went. But when did the manna end? Manna ended the day they entered into the promised land, right? What what would they have to do that day? Well, they would have to work to provide for their sustenance, right? Here it is described in the book of Joshua, Joshua 5.11. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So in a limited sense, we could say the day of miracles had ended, And they would now need to use ordinary means to provide for themselves. They're going to have to dig in the earth. They're going to have to plant. They're going to have to reap. And they're going to have to save. And I think Jesus is saying something similar to the apostles, though certainly um, the apostles would continue to perform miracles, and the book of Acts shows us that. But they would not have... Jesus there with them to provide for their needs miraculously or easily as their first preaching circuit had been. And so he says to them, you remember last time how you didn't have to prepare and you lacked nothing? Well, things are going to be different this time. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. And so they are about to engage in hard work, and that work of going out to the whole world to preach the gospel would require them to have supplies, it's going to require them to have money, it's going to require them to have protection. And as when Israel entered the promised land and the miracle provision ceased, so the apostles, the early church, would begin their new phase with Jesus seated to the right hand of the Father in heaven and the Spirit poured out, 
And it would be different circumstances. Jesus isn't there to take a few loaves and make them into a meal for thousands. The Apostle Paul would would make tents, even, as he went from city to city preaching the gospel. These men would be taking up new responsibilities on a new playing field. Jesus is gone. His care is gone, in a sense. They would now be the focal point, whereas Jesus before was the focal point of attack, now the apostles would be the focal point of the attack. The apostles would now be on the front lines without Jesus taking the initiative and stepping up before them. Calvin says the whole object of this discourse of Christ is to show that hitherto he spared his disciples so as to lay on them no heavier burden than they were able to bear. And now he reminds them of the indulgence that they received during the past time that they may now prepare themselves for war. He's telling them something about the grueling nature of the work they're about to engage in. He's telling them to gird up their loins like men and make provision for, as Calvin said, at warfare. They're going out to, to war. Now, a bit on this direction Jesus gives to the apostles about buying a weapon, buying a sword, right? There, there are a number of interpretations that, that pastors have taken here. Um, I've compiled five here. Some say this is, it's really just a knife and that they would have to carve their own meat. That's sort of what I just said. I mean, they're going to have to care for their own provisions. They're going to do this. But, but it, it, seems to, um, uh, it seems to pull it a little bit out of context. They say that because it was a Passover meal, there would have been knives on the tables and they just would have picked up one of the knives and it's possible. Or it's figurative, right? It's figurative for the fact that they are going to need courage uh, because what they're about to engage in is going to be very dangerous. And so they're going to have to have courage, courage that's represented by a sword. Or it could mean the, the sword could be figurative for the sword of the Spirit. Right, Sell your coat, buy the word of God, and take the word of God out. Um, again, figurative interpretation, somewhat of an allegorical interpretation there. Another possibility, another, another thing that some have said, is it's proverbial and symbolic. Right, The purse, the script, and sword, Ryle says, are parabolic expressions indicating that A time was drawing near when all human means, of which the purse, the script, and the swords are emblems, must be used by the apostles, right? They're going to have to use means. Jesus isn't with them. Jesus is going to provide for them, and they have to use those means. And then last, it could just mean a sword, (laughs) a literal sword for protection against robbers, and other dangers that they would face as they went out. I think it's clear that it's a combination of the above. It is figurative for courage. It's symbolic of human means versus miraculous means. And it's a literal sword for protection. Uh, 
um, and, and picking up that sword for protection points to the newness of the circumstances that they would face. This passage, you know, in contemplating this new situation for the apostles, the passage encourages me, as it should encourage you, to prepare for, for spiritual battles, for new circumstances that might face us. Right? We must make sure that we have what we need in order to remain faithful, to serve the Lord, to not bow the knee to the gods of this age when circumstances change dramatically. Now, the early church, the church that the apostles were about to, to take the reins of, right, faced dire circumstances. The battle uh, raged around our brothers and sisters in that first century. And they were faced with a situation that, that's described very well by, by um, Herbert Workman in, in his book, Persecution in the Early Church. And he says, he says that in opposition to the church, there, there rose up the, the mighty power of Rome, right? And, and, and he says that if, if Christianity had ceased to be aggressive then it would have ceased to exist. In other words, if it had ceased to think that there were no enemies for it to face, right? And we think of Jesus' words here, go buy a sword, apostles. He's he's speaking to them, encourage them, and they're going to be in hostile environments. And and Workman goes on to say that that the, the real force of the Roman Empire would be that a false sort of polytheism would rise up. And, and so here's the dilemma that they faced, what, what, which makes me ponder our own dilemma, which is coming up for the American church, for which we must be prepared, the changing circumstances in which the church will find itself. You've heard that the Romans were tolerant, right? You've heard that the Romans were tolerant, and that's what gave them... was. Was gave them the ability to spread their their kingdom far and wide is because they allowed every local principality to worship their own god. The Romans did that only if the locals were were willing to share just a little bit in their religion. Right? They were willing to do that if the locals were willing to syncretize. Two religions into one. Romans did that if the locals were, were willing to, for their deity, to make nice with the Roman deity, which was the emperor. But for Christians, that was impossible. Jesus forbid that. The word of God forbid that. So Workman writes this. He says the Christians were not persecuted because of their creed, but because of their universal claims. What was that universal claim? Well, for monotheism, he goes on, viewed merely as a philosophy, the Romans had some sympathy. But a monotheism which refused to allow a place for others had to be brushed aside because it was a it was an atheist, it was a political nuisance, right? It was a it was a it was atheism. 
deny our God. It's atheism. That's why Christians were called atheists. The universality of claim, the aggressiveness of temper, this consciousness from the from the first of worldwide dominion was the inevitable cause of Roman persecution. He says the church, neither the church nor the empire could act otherwise save by running contrary to their own doctrine. The failure to understand this essential opposition lies at the root of constant complaints of Christian apologists as to the different treatment measured out to them and to the other treatment measured out Workman says to those men who worship trees and rivers and mice and cats and crocodiles. Right? We worship one thing. Others worship many things and are happy to incorporate just one other thing in the midst of their gods. Right? Jesus so Jesus knew the Jesus knew the apostles were going to be heading headlong into a world dominated by Roman power. That would require them to compromise. He knew that the Roman powers would require Christians to compromise. It would tolerate them insofar as they were willing to say this creed. Christ is king and the emperor is too. The early Christians, though, were prepared for battle. By the apostles who had been prepared by Jesus. They would render to Caesar only those things that were Caesar's. And they would render to God the things that were God's. Caesar got the cash. Jesus alone got the worship. They would, they would only bow their knees to one God. And the Romans were constantly testing to see whether that was true. They had litmus tests, did you know? They had... Annual festivals in every province of the empire on the emperor's name day. Right? And what did they want to see? They wanted to see who came out to honor and worship the emperor on the emperor's name day. Again, this from Workmen. On these days, the magistrates, even if otherwise averse to cruelty... We're not anxious for political reasons to restrain the people from their exhibitions of loyalty. The festival of Caesar supplied all that was needed. Vast crowds gathered from every city of the province. The, present, uh, the presence of the official diets and of judges with power of summary conviction spurred on to by the sense of personal affront to themselves as the high priests of the new ritual. Beasts of prey were procured for the games. A most important point, this, lions and tigers were not always in stock, he says. A frenzied, a frenzied mob would start. An endeavor would then come on the part of the Jews to divert attention from themselves and their prejudices to the hated Christians so the Jews would add on top of this and say, no, no, it's the Christians who are rabble-rousers. We see this in the book of Acts, right? Of this connection, we have an illustrious illustration in the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was burned at Smyrna on Caesar's festival, February 23rd, 155. In the, in the, in the condemnation, it said, 
He was to be burned in the consulship of Statius Quadratus, but in the reign of the eternal king. That was not speaking of Jesus. That was speaking of Caesar. The reign of the eternal king. Now, not yet have we attributed divinity to the president. Though, Barack Obama was called a Messiah when he was elected. And not ironically. But we do have litmus tests as to whether we will be tolerant or not. I could put it this way. Sodomy is king. Will you submit? This will be the test of our religion. That will be the test of our patriotism. It's going to be the test of our willingness to serve the state and her godless interests. They'll let us have Jesus for now, just as the Romans early on let the Christians have Jesus. But they will force a choice. The new sexual orthodoxy or Jesus. I mean, do you see this? Do you see this everywhere? Do you see this all the time? The new sexual orthodoxy or Jesus, which will you have? Already people lose their jobs for not bowing the knee to precious sodomy. Already churches are having to accommodate sexual perversions in their bathroom usage. Already men and women with political aspirations are being booted from office or forbidden entirely from running if they do not support sodomy. Our cities sponsor and pay for gay pride parades. The schools where we send our children to forsake their faith, right? To forsake their faith for the God of sodomy, fire faculty members that profess faith in Jesus Christ. And the pressure will only increase, right? And there will be those within the church who will not heed the call of Jesus to be courageous, to be prepared, to get to work. And they will work to find a way to incorporate the new sexual orthodoxy into the church, right? It's happening in our denomination today. And it is accommodation to the God of this culture, to sodomy, And when those men have figured a way to nuance both their allegiance to Jesus Christ and their allegiance to sodomy, they will throw those of us who see no choice there under the bus. They will throw those of us who see the choice for what it is, a choice for or against Jesus Christ, a choice to serve the God of this age or the living God who is the same today, yesterday, and forever, will be thrown into the machinations of a God-hating state. I mean, and are we ready for it? I mean, it just sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, like I read too much of Drudge Report, right? But they will hear voices from this church ring out like Polycarp's did when he faced the same choice, right? 
86 years I've served him, and he has never done me injury. How then could I now blaspheme my king and savior? How could I blaspheme? How could I acknowledge some other king when this king has been so good to me through my entire life? But we have to be ready. We have to be ready. We must, as it were, sell our court coats and buy a sword. Right? I'm not suggesting rebellion. But I am suggesting faithfulness and courage in the face of incredible odds against us. I'm saying that the circumstances change from one where Jesus is with you and all is provided and faith is sight to one where Jesus leaves and the work is hard and the faith is not sight. The apostles went from relative ease to intense opposition and hostility by God's sovereign will. And may we be faithful in the coming days when that choice is put to us. May we confess Jesus Christ is king, king alone, to the exclusion of every other king. And may we use every means at our disposal to maintain our our freedom to worship Jesus Christ as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, this is... This is frightening to contemplate, to think of the the difficulties and the changing circumstances that my children and your children will face, right? We read about it now, and it's somewhat distant, but I think soon we'll, we'll be losing jobs. We'll be feeling pressure from the IRS and from the state. We'll have sermons that go online that are listened to by people who are not members of the church, who are looking for a reason to persecute the church. Right? Those, things will, those things will pick up pace. And the changing circumstances, the wonderful freedoms we have known, may be completely erased. And think of it, it's all... It's almost as gnarly as worshiping a man, isn't it? Worshiping sodomy. Now, where does Jesus go from here? He, he brings in a quote of Isaiah 53 that is meant to tell the apostles that his death is not defeat, but that it's victory. That's where he goes next. My death is not defeat. Remember what I'm saying here. It's victory. There's no other way to read Isaiah 53. It's the clearest passage in all of Scripture that lays out the precise doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that one would die for others. Right? He died in our place. Jesus is telling the apostles what his death will mean by using this reference. Here's the full verse, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So you see here, 
So, so Jesus is saying, hard work, changing circumstances. I'm going to die, but my death is victory. Understand what my death accomplishes. And that is the Christian hope. And that is what Jesus leaves with these apostles to remember, to contemplate, to, to, to have in their thoughts as they go out and suffer and preach this substitutionary death. His death in their place meant their salvation. And then verse 38. The apostles, perhaps misdirected, perhaps not, get fixated on what he said about the sword. Which is exactly what I would have been thinking about. Lord, look. Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus' response, it is enough. And both Ryle and Calvin take this to mean that Jesus is annoyed. That they're, they're missing the point, that they're focused on a peripheral issue. Like he's saying, enough already. I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying, that will do. That will do. That's what I mean. It's enough. So the circumstances are changing. Jesus is about to die. The death could be viewed as the end, but Jesus teaches them just before he dies that his death would win their salvation. And given Jesus' departure, the work of the apostles was changing dramatically, and they would need to avail themselves of a whole host of things that they hadn't had to up to that point in new circumstances that they hadn't faced yet. They would need courage, they would need faithfulness, they would need deep love for their king. And we know it happens. They would, the book of Acts proves they were faithful, they were bold, they were courageous, they were devoted. And the fact that we are here today worshiping Jesus Christ and studying those scriptures and those events is proof still. The book of Acts proves they were faithful by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit that was poured out upon them. Children. This isn't any joke. Playing Jesus. We've got to stop playing Jesus. Right? Like it's some sort of game. And be faithful. Faithful to our king, even to death. Faithful to our king. You are going to face changing circumstances. Will you be prepared? Or are you going to play Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we wouldn't just play Jesus, that we wouldn't just think that this is light and fluffy and nothing, but that this is life and death. And, Father, I pray that those who have been tasked with teaching the next generation would be faithful in it, and that we would teach those who would be faithful to teach others, and that you would raise up those who are ready to wield the sword with courage and skill, to the praise of our King Jesus. We pray in his name.
Amen.